0: Well, I'll just say this. I think this might be my favorite message out of the entire series. So, uh, you know, I really want to encourage you to to really tune in to what we're talking about tonight. Um, We're going to look at Moses because the Bible says in Numbers uh, chapter 12, verse 3, that at the time that Moses was alive, he was the most humble man who lived on the face of the earth. So, if you're doing a study on humility, you better look at the guy who was the most humble guy on the planet at the time to get instructed. And, and here's the thing, you know, I realize about Moses, and I've thought a lot about his life, taught a lot about his life, and studied it a lot. But, um, you know, ordinarily when we think about Moses, we think about the miracles. We think about the ten plagues that he called down on Egypt, or we think about the Red Sea, uh, and we don 't tend to think or we think about the glory of the Lord coming down on Mount Sinai and Moses, you know face getting lit up with the glory of the Lord and him hearing the name of the Lord. We, we think of these epic things that Moses experienced uh, we don 't tend to think about the difficulties and the challenges in moses life, and that 's what we 're going to look at tonight actually we 're going to look at the the context for that Amazing statement that Numbers 12, verse 3, the most humble man on all the earth. We're going to look at the, the context and these challenges that, that actually bring clarity to that fact. And so I just want to hop right into it and, and begin to work through uh, the, the details here. So, um, most people don't realize the level of difficulty that Moses had as a leader. We tend to think about the children of Israel and how they complained a lot, but we don't quite understand, you know, what level complaining they were doing and how difficult that was for Moses. So I just want to sort of walk us through the, the narrative. They had only been out of Egypt for 60 days. So it's two months that they're out of Egypt and they begin to say, we wish we were back in Egypt. Okay, they've just seen the 10 plagues fall on the nation. They've just watched it culminate with the death of the firstborn. They've just done the Passover and the death angel passed over them. And then they go and walk through the Red Sea. They've got the glory of the Lord, fire by night, cloud by day, and only two months in, they're ready to go back to slavery. So here's the deal. When you read the narrative of their time, what you realize is from about two months to about two years and two months, the level of their complaints just continues to heighten and heighten and heighten and heighten. There's rebellion, there's the golden calf, there's all these times when they're testing and tempting God, they're rejecting God's leadership, they're rejecting Moses' leadership, and the thing just continues to get worse and worse and worse until we get to about Numbers 10 and, and, and Numbers 11. And, and that's where we're going to kind of pick up the story because by two years in, they are completely done. They hate the food. Never mind that it's divine food that appears. You know, I mean, when you think about how manna actually worked, it, says it would it would crystallize with the dew on the, on the ground. And they would be able to pick up as much as they had need of, and if they picked up too much, if they got greedy, the, the amount that they picked up that was more when they tried to save it, that would actually rot. It was a, I mean a supernatural food that tastes like a nice little, you know, sweet cake. Glory to God for sweet cake. Amen. So <laughs> That's what they had. And the Bible says that the Lord actually gave them quail from time to time in the evening. They would actually have some meat as well. Well, what happens is this, by the two-year, two-month mark, they say, we're not getting enough uh, meat. We hate this manna stuff. We're just done with it. All that we were back in Egypt where we had all these other good foods. They're basically complaining about their living conditions and their food. And they'd rather be slaves in Egypt than free Serving the Lord, living by supernatural means. But it's not just a bad attitude. I mean, it's gotten to a, a, heightened, a heightened level that we don't quite get. And, and so by verse 10 of Numbers 11, you have the entire camp, two million people of the children of Israel, and they're in a complete depressive funk. The whole nation is. Verse 10, Numbers 11 Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused, and Moses also was displeased. I want you just to get your mind around how this is going. So in our county, Gwinnett County, we've got about 750,000 people, three quarters of a million people. Imagine tomorrow morning, you walk out your front door, and every single person in your neighborhood is at their front door and they're all crying. (laughs) We hate living here, we hate it. And so you drive down the street, go to the next neighborhood or the next apartment complex and every other person at their front door is all crying. And you go from Lawrenceville and you go over to Lilburn and you can't find a neighborhood where there's not people standing at their front door crying. Then you go over to Snellville, (laughs) then you're up to Tequila, right? I mean, Norcross, everywhere you go in Gwinnett, And the people are at the door of their house and they're all in depression, weeping because they don't like the food and they don't like where they're living. That'd be a weird day. I mean, just, this is what it was. This is the worst situation ever. When I think about Moses, I tend to think about the epic kind of biblical superhero guy That had all these amazing things happen. I tend to think about the sort of the complaining children of Israel. And then Moses is like the superhero. And, you know, he just always kind of won. But if you really get to understand what's going on in the story, it is the worst situation there is. You know, and as a leader, that's got a little bit of responsibility. I mean, nothing compared to what Moses had, but I get it. You know, when people aren't doing well, you feel it. You feel bad about it. You go, oh man, I wish they were doing better. And you think, man, I wish there was something I could do to make them, you know, make things better for them. Well, how about Moses with 2 million people and everyone is in depression? It's a bad day. It's just a bad day. Well, if you go and you do the, you know, do the work and you study it and you read it, you, you find this, that they continually complained about Moses. They continually complained. Why did you leave us out here, Moses. Why did you go up on the mountain for 40 days, Moses? Where is this Moses? He's gonna leave us. He's gonna leave us out here to die in the wilderness. Let's make a calf instead of following the God that He's told us to follow. Why, Moses? You're doing badly, Moses. We don't like you anymore, Moses. We're tired of manna, Moses. Give us meat, Moses. We're gonna die, Moses. And so finally, this thing is at this, this heightened fever pitch. And what's challenging about it all is this. Moses was only doing what God had told him to do. It's not like he was just jacking it up left and right. He was actually walking in complete obedience. He was doing everything the Lord had told him to do. And his, his obedient faithfulness gets him to a place where no one wants to follow him. <laughs> yeah, amen. So you wanna be a leader, you know what I mean? It's just hard. And I, and I man, I just try to put myself in his shoes and I just think, wow, it, uh, this is just hard. It's not like he made a bunch of bad decisions. He made the decisions that God told him to make. He made the steps that God called him to, to take. And, and, and instead, it's got him to this place where everybody is against him. And so finally, Moses takes off the superhero mask, not that he was ever, you know, fronting or whatever before, but he takes off this incredible prophet's mask and we get to look right into his heart and it's, it's tough. And in verse 11 of chapter 11, we we get real Moses. We get honest Moses. We get down and dirty, true what's going on with Moses. And this is what he says. Moses said to the Lord, why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you've laid the burden of all these people on me? I like what he says in verse 12. Did I conceive all these people? They're not my babies. I'm not their daddy. They're yours. Am I the one that conceived all them? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to give, to get meat to give to all these people for they weep all over me, (laughs) saying, give us meat that we may eat. You can almost, it almost sounds like a chant. A chant. Give us meat that we may eat. I mean, you can almost hear it. He goes, I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. And I don't know what it does for you, but when I see biblical figures in their humanity, it helps me. It helps me. Because so often we put them up on this pedestal and we think, man, they never had any problems. They just parted the Red Sea and called down plagues and, you know, glory the Lord all day long. And it just wasn't like that. They had the process of time. They had the difficulty of natural circumstances. They had the human dynamics and interactions with people. And, and you know, that's where we are trained so much. He says, this is too much for me. <laughs> and then verse 15 it's, it's so painful. It's so funny and so painful. He says, if you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. <laughs> this is the Bible. Mo- Moses, like our superhero, he goes, hey God, if this is what we're doing, just, could you just kill me now? I don't wanna do this anymore at all. Wow. I mean, I'm sure your life has been difficult. Have you ever gotten to that place? Just kill me. Yeah. Two million people all think you're the worst leader on the planet. They, they won't stop complaining. Everything is bad. They're all in depression. They're weeping at their door. And Moses just gets to the end of himself. He goes, I can't do this. I, I'm not the deliverer. I'm not the prophet. Just kill me. Let's end it he goes, if you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I have found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. The New Living Translation takes that sentence and translates it this way. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and spare me this misery. It's tough. It's tough. Right there in the middle of it. This is is Moses' prayer. So he's hoping the Lord answers him with, okay, you're dead. But instead, the Lord answers him with this. He goes, all right, I've got a word for you to share with the people, Moses. He goes, okay. He goes, tell the people I'm going to provide a lot of meat for them. In fact, not just one day or two days and not just 10 days or 20. Tell them they're going to have enough meat to eat for 30 days, all of them, as much as they can eat. And when you read the narrative, it's, it's, it's just enlightening because you just have Moses in this moment of his humanity and he just goes, I mean, he basically just goes, really? Yeah, that's, what, that's the answer? How are we gonna do this? What am I gonna supposed to do, slaughter, slaughter all the cattle? How are we gonna get enough meat for 2 million people to eat 30 days worth? Like all you can eat meat for 30 days, like we're in the desert. Have you noticed that, Father? We don't have that much meat. And the Lord answers, he goes, is my arm shortened that I cannot save? He goes, do you, did you forget what I do to Red Seas and nations of Egypt? Did you forget who I am and how I, how I provide? Did you forget who I am? And Moses goes, no, no, I, I didn't. I'll, I'll give the word. So Moses gives the word and here's what happens. It's wild. When you think about the actual process of what had to happen, it is just a fantastic miracle. The Bible says that God caused winds to blow and he blew in quail that on the either side of the camp of the children of Israel, a mile out on this side and a mile out on that side, that they were surrounded with quail that were blown in by the Lord. And, and so just think it through for a minute, how many, how broad of a region did the Lord have to start blowing wind to get enough quail in there? So he blows every quail on the planet over to where Israel is, and he blows them down with however the currents of wind is going, so that all the quail are hovering two to three feet above the ground. And the children of Israel go out there with their sacks and they just start grabbing quail out of the air and filling up bags. And it says that the one that collected the least collected about 100 pounds when you do the math. 100 pounds of quail per person, 2 million people, that's a lot of quail. A Whole lot of 200 million pounds of quail. And then it says this, that as they began to feast and eat the quail, that while they were still chewing it, while it was still in their teeth, the Lord struck them and judged them because of their rebellion and their disobedience and their greed. And Moses had to bury them there and he called the place, it's a Hebrew word, but it's it's basically called, (laughs) he named the place Graves of Greediness. So, you know, the answer to kill me now is I'll provide quail for a month. And Moses goes, well, maybe things are turning. They're looking up. It's about to get better. I'm really going to have a big win. And he gives the prophetic word and boom, all these quail appear. And it's like, yes, awesome. Now they're going to be happy again. And then the Lord judges them right on it. And it's like Moses can't win for losing. And so things are exceedingly difficult. I don't think you or I have ever had a day like this. I don't think we know what it's like to feel the pressure that Moses was feeling. Now, Roman numeral two. As if matters weren't difficult enough, after the quail incident, here comes Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister. His two strongest confidants, his two you know, biggest supporters and standbys and they've got a problem too. I can't stress enough how Moses was doing the right thing. He was doing what the Lord had asked him to do and it brings him to this place of incredible pressure and difficulty. So Moses' two closest relationships accuse him of wrongdoing, of overstepping and of being disqualified to be a prophet. Let's look at it right here in Numbers 12. It says, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And then this phrase, and the Lord heard it. Mm. So just a little bit to give context to the verse. So some of you guys right now, you know that Moses' wife Zipporah was a Midianite and that a Midianite and an Ethiopian are not the same. So commentators differ on what exactly is happening here. Uh, I kind of think this, and this is what a lot of commentators believe, is that Zipporah, they believe, had passed away. And that Moses had been remarried. This is his second wife. And that she was an Ethiopian. And, and some will make a big issue of the, the fact that perhaps it was a, an interracial marriage. Uh, I don't think that's the issue that Miriam is having a problem with. What I think the issue is that Miriam's having a problem with is the fact that she doesn't have the influence with Moses that she expected to have when Zipporah passed away. Because Miriam, would she was known as a prophetess. She would have been the key sort of female leader in Israel at the time. And uh, so when Moses has another woman that now has his attention and has his heart, Miriam gets jealous. And then she begins to say, look at how bad his leadership is. Look at how bad his choices have been. Look at where he's led us. And then she says to herself, aren't I a prophetess? And the Lord had called her a prophetess. And look at Aaron, he's the high priest. I mean, we've got just as much going as Moses does. Who is he? And so it's likely that Miriam brought the accusation because in the passage, she is referenced first. And when the Lord brings correction, you're gonna see that the Lord's gonna correct her primarily. And so here it is, his two closest people are now standing against him. He literally has no one on his team. Man. And then we get verse three. And to me, it's a head scratcher. Now the man, Moses, was very humble, more than all men who were on the earth. I, you know, for a long time, I would just read through these passages here in Numbers 10, 11, 12, 13, and then I just, get, I just go pull that one out because there's, you know, you don't really preach on the whole nation being in depression, like what's the takeaway? <laughs> I'm gonna preach a message on Israel's depression. You know what I mean? There's just not much to grab from it, it doesn't feel like. So I'd always just grab verse three and go, yeah, humility, Moses is the most humble guy. And not even think about the context. But I will tell you, the context is everything. That phrase in that sentence about Moses' humility isn't just thrown in there accidentally. It's intentionally placed right there when everything is at this crescendo of difficulty. It's placed right there and it informs us so much about the Lord's leadership, about what real humility looks like, and about how God leads our lives. And that's what I want to look at for just a second. I want to look at the context and allow it to inform us. So, right there under C, I give us three things that this context gives us. The first one is this Obedience doesn't always lead to tangible physical prosperity. (laughs) I know it's just hard to say amen to, but it's just true. It doesn't matter. Oftentimes God's directives are geared to lead us into a context that will produce meekness in us. The Lord is more interested in the eternal being forged inside of us than the temporal being lavished upon us. We all want the the testimony of, I was obedient, I followed the Lord, and then bam, everything is awesome. But here's Moses, he follows the Lord through one of the most miraculous, I mean it's probably the most miraculous trek besides anybody but Jesus in the Bible, most powerful prophet in the Bible. He follows the Lord in perfect obedience and his perfect obedience brings him to the most difficult situation. Because the Lord wasn't after his temporal comfort. He was after eternal rewards for Moses. And so often, obedience will lead you on a path into difficulty that will qualify you for something far greater than a little raise at your job. <laughs> I know it's not the message y'all paid me to preach, but y'all didn't pay me anyway, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) He's after meekness on the inside. And so perfect obedience oftentimes leads you right into the press, right into the difficulty, right into the trial. And oh, beloved, if it's, if it's, If that's what happens, if in that place, if we cannot accuse God, but we can submit ourselves to the Lord and trust his leadership in our life and allow him to produce in us the very thing he's trying to produce, you know, meekness, humility, or joy in a trial. Oh, the outcome is far greater than any of the temporal comforts that we would be looking for. And see, here's, our, our challenge is this, is, you know, we really do have this problem because we, we have things we need naturally and we tend to think of blessing as predominantly what we get that's temporal, that helps us, but the Lord's after different stuff. Like, it's the difference between happiness and joy. God wants to put joy in your heart and not just make you happy for a minute. See, so I think happiness is whipped cream. It's nice, it's on the top of the dessert, but man, a little bit of heat and that stuff melts down into nothing. Joy is that brownie underneath, glory to God. It's sort of the real stuff is. Joy is firm through the trial. And that's what God's after. He's after that thing that's on the inside that's real. Not just this sort of pep rally high. His... His obedience led him into the most difficult of circumstances and it was the Lord. And beloved, I just tell you that to tell you that your obedience might lead you into difficulty and it's the Lord that's fashioning you through it. Secondly, who you are is revealed in times of pressure and difficulty. Now this is so Real and so true, and so much that we don't really like to hear, but it's just absolutely how it works. Here's the thing about Moses this test wasn't geared to work meekness into him, this test was geared to reveal the meekness that was already a part of him. Now, how do I know that? I know it because of this. Moses had been a prince, right? He was in the palace of of Pharaoh of Egypt. He'd grown up there. And there's historians that actually even relate stories about, they're they're extra biblical, but they relate stories about Moses having charge of military and and doing conquests for Egypt. And so then when Moses grows up and he ends up, you know, having to leave Egypt, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, About how he commits murder and ends up having to leave. Uh, He ends up spending 40 years out in the desert. Now, I've never gone from a palace to living in the desert, but I would imagine there was all sorts of stuff in the desert that Moses had to learn for the very first time, like how to get his own water, (laughs) how to clean himself. He probably had servants doing that for a while. You see what I'm saying? Like his entire life is completely thrown upside down and going from the palace to being a shepherd out in the desert for 40 years, something is worked into the heart of the man. And my point is this, God uses the wilderness to qualify this man to be the deliverer. But what he learns in the wilderness is humility. See, he was already the most humble man in the earth at the time of the passage. It had been worked into him before. And so what happened was this. When all the pressure was on, then we get to see real Moses. And real Moses was somebody whose heart had been tempered with meekness and humility to the extent that the Lord could truly say through the scripture about him, the most humble man on the face of the earth. It's pressure that causes us to see who we really are, guys. It's in the testing and in the trial that we see who we really are. And that's what was going on with Moses. This was about revealing who he really was. And it was those years spent in the wilderness. And so here's my point. You might be going through something today or this decade or this 20 years. I don't know. You're going through something. For Moses, it was a 40-year Bible school class, right? 40 years of wilderness training. He got a master's, he got a doctorate in wilderness training, 40 years worth but it was the 40 years of difficulty that trained him in humility. I don't know what the path is you're on right now. I don't know what's going on, but the challenges are all geared to cause you to cling to God, to hang on to Jesus, to, to come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, like we talked about last week, because there's a rest for your soul. He wants to impart to you. There's a a, a yoke that he wants to put on you of of meekness. There's a transformation that he wants to work into your life and it's what he did to Moses and the situation, it revealed who he really was. What I don't want is this. I don't want to get into the situation when the trial is on and when the press is on and have, you know, shook off every challenge And, you know, acting like, well, I don't deserve all this until I get to the real trial. And then when I get there, what God was trying to construct on the inside isn't there. What happens if Moses shows up here in Numbers 12 and he's not the most humble guy on the earth? What happens? I mean, I just... (laughs) I just think about Miriam and Aaron coming to him, and aren't we prophets? Don't we don't we hear from the Lord too? Can you imagine? Moses? I mean, th- think about the hundred things Moses could have said. You now, did you guys see what I did at the Red Sea? Did, did were you? I mean, did you actually see it? I put my staff in the water, and two walls of water formed, and it wasn't just mushy walking across; the ground was dry. Come on, did you see what I did? I did some things. I got a ministry, you know what I mean? Like, Did you see what I did to the firstborn? You better shut up. I mean, there's no, there's no end to the stuff he could have said. But something else had been worked in him. My point is this. Don't disdain the trials and the challenges that God leads you through today. They're setting you up to be able to walk through something even more challenging in a day ahead. He's preparing your heart. He's setting you up for victory in a day ahead. Third, our propensity to defend or retaliate Is a great indicator of our level of meekness or lack thereof. Moses didn't say anything. I want to remind you something. Remember when he got kicked out of Egypt? Remember what that was all about? He saw how the Egyptians were mistreating the Israelites. And Moses took matters into his own hands and he murdered someone. And this is the same guy when the whole nation has turned against him, and his brother and his sister have turned against him, he doesn't do anything. The 40 years had transformed him. It's the same guy but now something different has been worked into his heart. And this is the point. With all the pressure beating down on him, with the entire circumstance weighing on him, in the moment, the most critical moment, verse three, Moses is the most humble man on all the earth. The way we know that is how he acts in it. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't defend. And beloved, this is, man, this is working me right now. Because I see all the little ways that God gives me opportunities to not defend myself (laughs) and not retaliate. You know, the person comes to you and they they say the thing, you know, that little thing that kind of works your heart a little bit. And there you are, right? uh, The answer's right there. It's right there. And you're like, hmm. Mm-hmm, mm mm-hmm. not a good point you got there. Thank you for sharing that. It, it's always something where, you know, maybe you know the answer, you know what to do. I, I remember when we, when we first had our first child and uh, my wife, she is, when it comes to child raising, she is a maven. I mean, she reads every, she read every book there was. She knew them all. Oh, that's Dobson. Oh, that's the Izzos. I mean, she knew, you quote it, she knew it. And so there you are, you got your first kid, you know, six months and they just won't shut up. They're just crying. And then the the people come trying to help you and walk on over. Oh, you think he's hungry? Uh Uh-huh. I do. That's why I just fed him. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, well, maybe he needs to be changed. Oh, you think? You think maybe we just need to change that old diaper? Yeah, I just did that too. Thank you. Bless you. Well, well, I know what it is. He needs to go to sleep. You think? <laughs> I'm putting him to sleep right now. <laughs> but it always works that way, right? They come to you with the best advice. <laughs> and you're right there going like, <laughs> and you have this opportunity to go, you know, actually I did that. I did it five times. Thank you very much. Or you can go, hey, you know what? I'll consider that. But I find that that kind of an example, it plays out in so many different interactions, personal interactions. You know, the person showing up that tap dances on your last nerve, that's not always the devil. (laughs) Here they come. And you're like, oh, dear God, Satan, I bind in the name. And and the Lord's going, try binding me because I'm sending them over to you. They're about to say something you don't like. And you're gonna get to be humble. You're gonna get to not defend yourself. And you're gonna get to not retaliate. Mm. Moses had every right to retaliate. Like I said, I mean, he could have looked at Miriam and go, did you see the Red Sea? Why don't you shut up? Did you see it? Did you see what I did in in Egypt? Shut up. Instead, he just stays quiet. It's wild to me. But I notice how that thing in me, that, that propensity to defend myself or to prove myself, or when somebody does me wrong, to retaliate, it shows the level of meekness I'm walking in. You know, and this is how we do it in a church, Somebody comes, they say something to you about you and you keep your mouth shut, right? Because you know you're not supposed to say anything and then you get on your phone and you go, I need you to pray for me. <laughs> oh, because so-and-so said something. Let me tell you what they said. I'll tell you everything they said to me. <laughs> and then we slander them. Not that you can't ask for prayer. Do ask for prayer. Go, you know what? I just had a bad interaction with somebody. Don't have to say who it was. I need you to pray for him. My heart's not right. But when you take that person's indiscretion and turn it around and you begin to share it freely, you just turned it into slander. You've joined with them in their own sin. Man, am I preaching good right now? (laughs) I know, y'all. Gabe told me after this morning, he was like just going, oh man, I feel it too. Mm -hmm. Here's how it works. When you defend yourself, you shortcut God's defense of you. When you take matters of vindication into your own hands, you leave no room for the Lord to vindicate you. Romans 12, 19, he says, do not take revenge, leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God to vindicate. Leave room for God to defend. And I find that we're we're so eager to defend and to justify, and instead of just keeping our mouth shut, we jump in, we do our own defending. It's the self-protecting I talked about last week, and it just leaves no room for the Lord. And I see that I can just imagine the Lord going, "Oh, you're so good at that. Look at you, just defending yourself. Okay." You get to defend yourself. I was totally gonna defend you, but you got it, clearly. And that's the the key key question is, do you want the Lord's defense or do you want self-defense? I know. I really do want the Lord's defense. Now, it's never gonna be the way that I think, you know, because I'm going, that's right, defend me, God. Defend me. And the next thing you know, that person that you want to be defended against, they get blessed with something. You're like, um... That did not look like vindication. He's like, if you'll just wait, I've got you. I've got this. <laughs> but we want it now. That's why he says, Bless those who curse you, bless and do not curse. Because he's trying to get us to allow him to be our shield, our rear guard our defense, our vindicator, and our justifier. Now, the story doesn't end there, it keeps going. So Roman numeral three, there's this incredible, incredible principle that really is, I think, what God's trying to get out of us in meekness. And it's that meekness leads to mercy and redemption. So here's what happens. The Lord heard, after the Lord heard, took notice of, uh, of the accusations, he says, you know what? We're gonna have a little come to Jesus. So look at verse four, chapter 12. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, they all hear it, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both went forward. Then he said, hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. At that moment, I'm wondering if Miriam is thinking, this is about to go well for me. Because she's like, he's like kind of saying that Moses doesn't even get the dreams and the visions. Like he, he Moses doesn't even get what a real prophet gets. I got dreams and visions. Huh? Yeah, not so with my servant Moses. I think there's just a moment I can imagine Miriam going, all right, all right, this is going good. He's called me forward. This might be the moment. No, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. And at that moment she goes, oh no, he's more than a prophet. He's a friend of God. And he goes, the Lord says, why then were you not afraid to speak against Moses, my servant? What were you thinking, Miriam? You messed up. (laughs) So the anger of the Lord was aroused against him and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam and there she was, a leper. You know, if you and I are Moses at that moment, we're like, well, there it is. Glory to God. I didn't say anything. You said stupid stuff. You're a leper. Stinks to be you. Let me get back to leading the nation, <laughs> right? I mean, because it, it's, from our, this how we tend to think, we, he just won, he just won. He was humble, he didn't do anything wrong, God vindicated, yeah, and, and you know, just move on. But that's not how it ends. And this is the most critical point of this entire narrative, And this is what verse three is even about. Because in that moment, Aaron turns to Moses and he's gripped with the fear of the Lord and he repents. He says, Moses, I'm sorry. We're sorry we were wrong. What we said was wrong. Please have mercy on Miriam and ask God to heal her. Now, again, just imagine you're Moses. You're like... Heal her, huh? Wasn't she just like, you know, rebuking me like 30 seconds ago? Weren't you, I mean, do you you really think I need this right now? Have you seen the depression all over the camp? Like, you think I really need you and your attitude? I think, you know, I think we'll wait. I'll tell you what, wait a month. Go seek the Lord in the prayer room. Come on back. Leprosy's not going anywhere. Maybe I'll pray for her in a month, you know? I mean, there's, a, there's this place where you just feel like, man, Moses should just kind of, mm, 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 just put it in there a little bit. He doesn't do any of that. Please, cry out to the Lord on her behalf, Moses. Moses immediately turns and makes intercession for her. And the Lord, when the Lord appears, <laughs> to, it says, speaks back to Moses, he goes, if she were unclean ceremonially, she'd at least have to spend seven days outside the camp. So I'm gonna give her the seven days and then after that she'll be restored and she'll be healed. Moses was asking for instant healing and even the Lord goes, we're gonna give her a seven day break. But here's the point. Without hesitation, Moses makes intercession for the one that had brought the accusation. Meekness qualifies you to be the instrument of mercy toward those who inflict wrong upon you. Without humility, Moses allows the judgment to be enacted upon her and walks away. Maybe he even calls the judgment down on her. With humility, Moses becomes the instrument that God uses to bring mercy and redemption to her. Beloved, one of those thoughts is the ways of man, and one of those thoughts is the ways of God. One of those thoughts is Christianity, and one of those thoughts is not. The challenge for us is that we have to be renewed in our mind, transformed in the way that we think and the way that we act, so that we can actually live this Christian life the way Jesus calls us to, rather than looking for judgment on every person that does us wrong or says something negative to us. And to me, the most mind-blowing thing is that in the gospel, when you've been done wrong, you have this unique position through humility and through forgiveness to be the very instrument of God to release the power of resurrection on that person. I was thinking about uh, Joseph, I'll just insert this. What if Joseph had looked at all that his brothers had done, didn't comprehend the context of God training him through the prison, through Prodifer's house, didn't understand any of it, built up anger and bitterness. His own brothers sold him into slavery. What if he allowed all of that to mount, build up in his heart, so that when his brothers show up, he just curses them? What happens to Israel? But no, no. See, the Lord worked enough into Joseph at Potiphar's and in the prison. So that when he was exalted to the palace, he had enough meekness in him to meet the challenge of facing his brothers and being the instrument of mercy for Israel. Beloved, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Look at this. 1 Peter 2, 19. This is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Man, am I reading the Bible right now? Too often we hear this, Jesus suffered so you don't have to. Peter's so super clear. Jesus suffered so by the grace of God, we're able to suffer with him. We're able to fellowship with him through it. And we're able to ultimately be an instrument of power in the hand of the Lord. He says, you were called to this. Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled... Criticized is the idea, reviled means he was criticized did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously and you have to catch it in the cross when jesus did nothing wrong when he said nothing wrong and they said everything wrong against him he keeps his mouth shut he spreads his arm out and he arms out and he dies on behalf of the ones that are driving the nails He is the instrument of mercy and redemption for the very ones that are perpetrating sin against him. This is the gospel. These are the steps that we are to follow Jesus in so that when we're done wrong, we humble ourselves and we forgive and we don't revile in return. And we become the very instrument of mercy that God uses to bring resurrection to the person that's done the wrong to us. Oh, beloved. This is is the God kind of life. This is the power of the gospel. This is the power of humility and meekness. There's no other power that causes that person Who's, who's been done wrong, to be exalted to the place, to be that instrument of, of, of mercy for that, that wrongdoer. It's the gospel that does that. Moses, just like Jesus, didn't revile when he was reviled. A key test of meekness is if you don't fight back when you are reviled. If you can forgive those who wrong you, you can be the instrument of mercy God uses to redeem the wrongdoer. This is living the cross. When they're crucifying you, you're crying out for mercy on their behalf. When Jesus Christ dying on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then you fast forward just a handful of years. And the first Christian martyr, Stephen, when he's being, I mean, bludgeoned with stones, he says, Father, Don't hold this against them. He says the same thing. The point is, this is Christianity. When we're done wrong, we don't do wrong back. We pray for mercy and God answers with power. That's how it works. Oh, and that's all possible because of meekness. It's all possible because humility worked in our hearts. Only in embracing the fact that we are crucified with Christ are we able then to bring the power of the resurrection to a world who desperately needs it. So it's not just we want to be humble because we want to be like Jesus. For sure that. And it's not just we want to be humble so we can have our our souls restored. For sure that. But there's a power in humility and meekness that qualifies you to be able to be that instrument of resurrection that you just can't get to any other way. Oh, beloved. This is the way of humility. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of Christianity. You know, when you say, Lord, teach me your ways. Teach me your ways that I can walk in your truth. I think sometimes we just don't know what we're asking really. It's this kind of stuff that are the ways of the Lord. That's it. I want to commend you. I want to commend you for hanging in there and going for this because this is what, this is our portion. This is what our portion looks like to be a people who look like Jesus, who love like Jesus and are using the hand of the Lord to bring the power of the resurrection to people who need it in the earth. Amen.